Okay, and we're back in Exodus chapter 21, and we are moving through the law. And now we're in the particularities, the very specifics of the law. We had started and had heard the 10 overarching principles, those 10 commandments. And then from here, what unfolds are the, the outworkings of that in the everyday life of Israel. What are we supposed to do? How do we live this out day to day? Well, that's what these commands are going to get at. And as we look in our section this morning, verses 12 to 36, that is through the rest of chapter 21, really the question that surfaces is, what is a life worth? What is a life worth? Do you value life? And how much is a life worth? And these are, in very tangible, practical settings, this is what our law courts, the question they have to ask, and it's one necessarily just by the very demands of having to give a statement and justice, that they have to answer it. Namely, when there's been the taking of a life, they have to say something about that, and what they say says how they value or don't a human life. Al Mohler writes this, he noted, The trial of Anders Bering Breivik represents one of the greatest tests of human justice in decades. He goes on, Breivik stood in an Oslo courtroom and he declared, I admit to the actions, but not to the guilt. The actions, of course, were the killing of 77 people on July 22nd in 2011. Eight were killed in a car bomb in Oslo, and then Brevik then shot 69 people to death on Yatoya Island. Having admitted to the killings, Moeller reminds us, Brevik told the court, I would do it again. He may have the opportunity to do so because Norwegian law allows Brevik to be imprisoned for only 21 years. Their law system says you're imprisoned only for 21 years even if found guilty of all 77 murders. How can this be? Mueller asks. What sane nation would allow a maximum sentence of 21 years in prison for premeditated murder, much less the calculated killing of 77 people? Then I would add, what's the answer? It's a nation or society that has cheapened a human life. And into that kind of moral chaos that is the soup of our world these days, into that moral chaos, God's law arrives to give soundings, to get to the bottom, to get to the truth. The the very truths that form our world, these are the truths that, that frame eternity. These are the truths we know, actually, deep down in our heart, because we're made with the image of God. And what is that that we know? Life is precious. And if our laws undermine this, Our society begins to unravel. That's what we're seeing, sadly, in the West. And here's the point. Whatever our culture or our society might do, we, the people of God, must prize life as our Savior does, the one who came and died for it. So what does this mean for us as we look at these laws here in Exodus 21? Value life. Prize a life like God does. That's what these laws teach us over and over, to value and prize life. And how does that play out in our life then? And it has two kind of aspects to it. In the first place, and the main that comes from this text, is seek justice for others. That for the good of others' lives, you want what's just for them. You want what's right for them, and you're going to pursue that for them. Seek their justice. That's the main what these laws are about. 
And then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and see Jesus. He explains further or really corrects a misapplication of this principle that's in this text. So on the one hand, you seek justice for others, but Jesus will clarify and highlight, and that also means you extend mercy yourself. That is, we're after justice out there for our neighbor, but then when we've been wronged because of our other priorities, we're about extending mercy. We'll talk about what this looks like. But we'll take kind of each one of these uh, imperatives in turn, and we'll look at the first by looking at our main text here, Exodus 21. And we'll see that God's law is about valuing life, which means you need to seek justice for others. Be out pursuant of justice for others, Exodus 21, 12 through 36. Because as we start stepping further into God's law, this is the next page in what's called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant is the, the outlaying of the principles, how they get applied. That is, we had the Big Ten moral ethics, but what does that look like when this happens? What does that look like when there's been a law breaking? What, what should happen? What's the right consequence for some wrong done? That's what these commands are now starting to answer. And so what is the right consequence when you break one of the Ten Commandments or you violate somebody in some way or injure them? What's to be done? Well, the answer is, it depends. That's what these laws are going to show you. It depends. It depends on the nature of the offense. As we work throughout this passage and throughout the law, this much is clear, though. This is what's constant. Whatever the punishment or consequence is, it must be fair. It must be equitable. It must be just. That's the point. And it's captured in verses 23 through 25 with this poetic expression of this, really, a poetic justice. And here it is. We look in verse 23, the latter half. It mentions that you are going to pay life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is what's known, it's called in Latin, the lex talionis, or other words, the law of retaliation. But from there, just even as it's stated, the law of retaliation, as a mantra of justice, it's often misunderstood and then misapplied. This is not about some kind of brutal justification for revenge. You know, you do that to me, well, you better know I'm going to do that to you. That's not what eye for eye, tooth for tooth is about at all. It's never been about that. We'll see that clarified in this text. From the start, you need to understand this is, that this is a poetic statement, and it's not given to incite revenge, but actually assuage it, actually discourage it, and wholly regulate it, lest it run rampant through the people of Israel. Because it really is, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it's a statement about justice, what's fair, equity. Life for life, eye for eye, it's about just punishments. Maybe to put it in vernacular, we more readily understand. It's about having a punishment that fits the crime. That's what this is. It's about a punishment that fits the crime. It's all about regulated, proportional justice so that vengeance doesn't take over. Because when people start taking justice, as we say, into their own hands, they, it, it, it inevitably gets out of hand, doesn't it? That's why you need guardrails like this for the people of God. The punishment must fit the crime, and that's the point of life for life, tooth for tooth. And so what unfolds in verses 12 through 36 are different levels of crime, basically, and the corresponding consequences for that. 
And so to turn to the first, as it begins in verse 12 through verse 17, we have the most severe infractions. And if you were to summarize what this looks like then, it's this. If you take a life, then your life should be taken. That's life for life. And that's what's encapsulated by verses 12 through 17. And it really begins with the heading that starts in verse 12. Look at this. This is kind of the heading for this section that follows. It starts and says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. In other words, we're talking about murder. And because each human life is to be prized and has special value, if there's the intentional murder of another human being, a fellow image bearer, You understand, that image must be respected, that person must be prized, and so God commands that the murderer, the one who ended the life, that his life should be ended. I mean, we saw this when we studied the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. But what we also study when we study the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, is this, that not all killings are equal, are they? You can have, and our justice system does this, and we have it here. You can have premeditated murder. That demands a certain consequence. You can have a crime of passion. That demands a consequence, maybe lesser. You can have manslaughter. That demands a different consequence. And God's law does the same thing, distinguishing that. It's important to take these into factor, such that, verse 13, it describes an accidental killing. And then you have that germ of this notion that we talked about in some detail with... um, when we dealt with the sixth command about you shall not murder. But the germ of that detail, when there's been manslaughter, the manslayer can flee to a city of refuge and so forth. Verse 14, however, though, clarifies, if there's been a deliberate murder, an intentional killing, that person cannot escape. Such that if he's trying to even find refuge around the altar of God, you take him away from that altar and put him to death. Now, we turn to the next three laws that... What ties them together is that they share the same consequence, the death penalty. It's called upon the violators. Look at verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoa. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. First thing we notice, they all end the same way, shall be put to death, shall be put to death, shall be put to death. Now, really, this calls to mind, if we were to look at the original Hebrew here, the Hebrew reader or hearer is going to think back to the Garden of Eden in the very beginning, because God gave a warning to Adam in the garden. Remember what he said? The first warning, really, command, prohibition he gave him, he said, you shall not, you can eat of every tree in the garden and do that, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Or more literally in the Hebrew for emphasis, it's listed like, you shall die, die, is kind of how it's put. And that kind of repetition of expression is exactly what follows as it gives the consequence for each of these violations. You shall be put to death, he must be put to death, or more literally in the Hebrew, you shall die, die. You shall surely die. So evidently, God takes these crimes as really serious, such that the person needs to be put to death. And as you look at those next three from verses 15 to 17, we all look at the kidnapping and slavering. Well, that's, yeah, that's horrible. I guess I get that. But then you also have how you treat your parents. You see, it forms like this sandwich. You've got like, don't hit your parents, then don't 
capture people and sell them, and then don't curse your parents. Forms this sandwich. Well, in the middle, we're like, yeah, that's really bad, but what, against our parents, is that a little steep? You know, you curse them or you hit them, you should be put to death. What's the logic here? And it's namely this. All three of those crimes, they all insult the value of life. They all show contempt for life. Whether we're talking about assaulting or even attacking our very parents, the source of our earthly life, for that, the death penalty is warranted. And of course, then you can talk about the actual abduction of another person's life. You've effectively taken their life from them and forced it to be used to things they don't care to. And we briefly spoke last week how this verse alone so manifestly condemns the slave trade of the new world and that not peculiar institution, as some of the southern states called it, but the horrible, evil institution of slavery. But that's not just a thing of the past, sadly. Such acts of kidnapping and forced slavery are going, you could say, alive and well in our own day, sadly enough, and especially now of a sexual kind, a kind of sex slave. You understand Sex trafficking is a big, horrible business. These days, generating a 100 billion with a B crime industry, fueled by nearly 2 million captured children. Sadly, such slavery and abuse of such life is alive and well. In all such contempt, All such disregard for life, according to these laws, shows us what God cares about. Again, that's what's uncovered in these laws. Shows us that the perpetrator forfeits his own life. Again, under the law system, life for life. Now, we need to clarify. We did this before we jumped into the Ten Commandments, but we got to say it here because we're coming upon death penalty, death penalty, death penalty, death penalty. So, Rick, are you saying we should go out and, uh, you know, be jury, judge, and executioner on all these people? No, right? And why not? Because we are not old covenant Israel. God has not entrusted to us the sword. We are not a nation state. The church and state are separate in God's economy under the new covenant. So that's why when you go to Romans 13, the government, we hear, has the sword, not the church. And the sword there represents the punishment of evildoers, including even the death penalty, capital punishment. But we, as the church, don't wield the sword. We are not establishing and building earthly kingdoms. God builds through us, namely through the use of the sword of the Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, He builds through us a spiritual kingdom that transcends boundaries, cultures, nationalities, And in that spiritual kingdom, we carry on these godly values, yes, we should be concerned about these very same things, yes, but they are not disciplined and dealt with in the same way like they were under the old covenant. But what can we gain from these? Nevertheless, we see that God cares about life, and it needs to be protected and prized. That's what's evident in these first laws that follow. Well... 
to extrapolate further from this, these laws get more specific. And what happens if you don't kill the guy? What then are you supposed to do? Is everybody off the hook? Well, here's the principle that surfaces. If you injure life, your life should be injured. That's what falls out of verses 18 to 27. And again, even though I phrased it like this to that we remember what's happening. But the point is, this is not about vengeance. This is about justice. This is about fairness, just judgment. To show you this, look with me at verses 18 and 19. So here it says, When men quarrel, and one strikes the other, say with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, because he's so hurt, right? Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff... He who struck him shall be clear. He shall only pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So if you're, you know, in a battle, punching a dude, because it's obviously on purpose, but you don't kill him, you to quote from this text, it says, he's in the clear if you don't kill the guy. In the clear from what? You're in the clear from the death penalty applying to you because you didn't kill him. So the death penalty shouldn't come upon you. You escape the guilt of the death penalty. But you don't escape all consequence just because you didn't kill the guy. Actually, you are on the hook to care for him. Namely, to pay for his loss of time, it says, and have him thoroughly healed, the end of verse 19. And in our culture, we get this. Maybe get it a little too much, frankly. See, so overcome with lawsuits over and over again. But the right kind of injury lawsuit is exactly what this kind of thing's about. If you hurt somebody and so then he can't work and he can't earn his paycheck and then he's accrued all of these great medical bills that are really your fault because you hurt him, well, you should be paying for those. It's not an inconvenience to you that you happened to hurt a guy and then he got hurt. No, you're on the hook. You did that. You owe him for back pay and you owe him for whatever that cost. But you see... This is how the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth really works. You cause the injury, and you're literally going to pay for it, but you're not going to pay for it literally by a corresponding injury. That's not the point, right? This isn't, oh, I punched you, I injured your eye, well, I'll try not to flinch, go for it. Do your, do your worst. That's not how this works. You owe him medical damages of the injury. That's justice here. And it's true for all parts of society, even the slaves, or really, as we talked about last week, more like indentured servants that we described last week. They too have rights, and if they get injured, even by their master. So we read in verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he, that is the owner, shall be avenged. First, just recognize and this was very different from the other laws in different ancient Near Eastern cultures. But notice the actual standing and recourse a, quote, slave has under God's law. Even if his master beats him to death, he shall be avenged. Which, what does that mean? Well, the master should be put to death because he killed a human being. Now, let me back up and clarify one thing. Even with this comment, when it says, when a man strikes his slave, his male or female, with a rod and so forth, God doesn't give this law because He tacitly approves of beating our slaves or our servants, or anyone for that matter. 
This is like what we talked about last week. This parallels the principle we were dealing with when we talked about slavery and we talked about polygamy. There's an analogy to when Jesus talks about divorce in Matthew 19. Remember, he was having this debate with the Pharisees, and they were like, so what's the particular requirements about when you should divorce somebody? And what does Jesus tell them about what Moses intended and what he meant? Listen, God made it in the beginning. There would be no divorce. But it's because of your hardness of heart. He's giving you some guardrails to regulate, basically, what sin does in this world. And in the same way, these laws about even with slavery, these laws about polygamy, they're all of that same nature. We are in a corrupt, fallen world. This isn't God's ideal. It's not the way it should be. And so we're going to give protections for those so they're not further abused. But either way, you see, God's word is coming here even to the slave to protect his life, to give rightful dignity to his life. Such that, again, if the master beats him to death, that master should be put to death. Again, why? Because he wasn't merely a slave, but he was a human, bearing the image of God. Okay, but what if he beats him and he doesn't quite die? What do you do then? That's kind of where we are. Look at verse 21. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged. That is, not to be put to death. For the slave is his money. What does this mean? Let me clarify what it does not mean. It does not mean that the master owns the slave and can just do whatever he wants with him. That's not the point. That's not what's going on here. What is going on? If a master is dumb enough, so lacking self-control to beat his own servant, that he puts him out of commission for a few days, that's the master's loss. Think back to the analogy I just talked about. If you got in a fight and you injured a guy and he couldn't work anymore, what are you supposed to do? you got to pay for that other free guy for the job he couldn't do and to have him thoroughly healed. Well, for the servant, that's already on the hook to the master. So when he's injured his own servant, he'd have to be paying back himself. That's the point. You don't even have to bother, of course. You're already out from what you've done. And notice the slaves' rights even further in this. Look down to verses 26 and 27. We can't read them and go in detail, but as you just scan that, in verses 26 and 27, if you were to strike your slave and permanently injure him, even so much that he loses a tooth, you forfeit your slave. And remember how this worked. You came into slavery willingly because you had some incalculable debt you couldn't repay. So that owner then is then out that whole debt. It's going to cost him because he's got to set him out for free. The slave is protected here, just as the free man. The murder of one deserves to die under God's law because they both bear the image. Now let's look at the next scenario. Again, kind of these case laws, these particulars. What's to be done? What judgments are to be made? Well, here you have a, a battle going on, and now there's collateral damage. Someone else gets hurt, and this time it was not intended, but it's one of the most vulnerable people to start with, a pregnant woman. And God deals with this too. And I want you here to particularly listen, because this, is, this may prove the clearest passage in the Bible about how you should think not just about the vulnerable, but the vulnerable that are in the wombs of their mothers. What kind of value does God place on a life like that? This text will tell us. But first, let's read the scenario. Verse 22. When men strive together 
and hit a pregnant woman. You know, it's like, guys, you should take it outside so you don't have this happen. This woman gets hit, and she's pregnant. Verse 22, the middle there. So that her children come out. The idea is premature, premature birth resulting from the blow to the mother. So she's given birth prematurely, but there is no harm. That is to the baby. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. Again, this whole scenario so far, it's all about justice. It's all about fairness and protection. Actually, for everybody. In the first place, for the pregnant woman, she can't protect herself. They can't protect themselves from abuse. But God's law comes in and sets up protections here, provides safety. In this case, financial deterrence. So you're going to be more careful. You're going to think twice about getting in a fight even with someone else, especially if a pregnant woman's around. And there's even a further check in protection for the criminal. Again, this is wild, right? Because if you set up this scenario, my wife was pregnant and she got hit and she got hurt from you messing around being an, an idiot, you know, I'll be like, okay, yeah, let's go to court. Come here, friend, and take your wallet and the deed to your house. You're going to pay. You know, I want vengeance. So the husband can set the fee, it says, that he shall impose on him, but then the judges have to go back and determine whether that's fair or not. In the same way, you might sell a house, and, and who has to come behind you? The appraiser. And he has to go whether or not that was a fair price for this house and this market and all of that. That's kind of what the judges are doing here with the price the husband has set that should be paid by the violator who hit his wife. And that's if when the babies come out, there was no harm. It's not no harm, no foul. You're going to pay because you hurt the woman. But let's say you hurt the baby. What happens then? So let's look at this. Look at verse 23. Here's the other tragic scenario. But if there is harm, and it's the same word when we talked about harm to the children earlier. But if there is harm, that is to the baby, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Ah, of course. Yeah, I get it. That's the lex talionis. But do you catch the importance about why it is right here? If there is harm, it's understood probably, death to that baby, then you pay, let me tell you, he says, life for life. Why? Because that was a life in the mother's womb. And you killed it by your negligence and your sinful idiocy. And so now your life is forfeit, life for life. That's justice. That's fair. And I think, understand, it's by no mistake that as we're here talking about the injury to the most vulnerable, the most defenseless of human lives, that this is the first time God puts forth this command, the lex talionis, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, to back up the protection of the most vulnerable among us, the baby who's in the womb. They call it a fetus. It is a human life in full. And so then it's worthy of all protection. It has equal value even to your own life, life for life. You see how this works? Do you think your own life's worth protecting? Well, if it is, so is theirs, whether they've come through the birth canal or not. 
so is theirs, even though it's the most dependent, the most vulnerable. Why? Because they're no less human than you are. They may be needier, sure, of course. They need more help than you do, sure. But their life is a gift from God marked by its maker. And so it's precious, it must be. That's what the word is telling us here. And what makes it so precious is not because, well, the baby's so smart and he has so much potential. He's so healthy. You know, he's a contributor to society. Of course not. She's valuable because she wears the image of her maker. And the same is said for those who are born but who are very needy and who are poor or poorly educated or who can't think well, who are slow mentally or otherwise, or who are weak or who are old, or whose minds have gone and age has handicapped them. But God says their life is every bit as precious as yours, life for life. Again, the underlying principle here is all about prizing and protecting a life. Not letting the stronger run roughshod over the physically weaker. This is not survival of the fittest, as the atheist wants to tell you or evolutionist. You don't get to say what a life is, like whether it's worth preserving or not. Like the Nazis who said, yeah, that's life, but that's a life not worthy of life. No, God says, if it's alive and bears the image of God, which every human does, it's worthy of all life that I gave it. You don't get to make that evaluation. You don't get to make that judgment. God does, and He tells you this, all lives matter before Him. Each life, from womb to tomb, young to old, strong to weak, smart to slow, life for life. All lives are to be prized and respected and protected. And that must be reflected in our care and concerns as Christians to emulate what our Lord has put out here in His law and His Word. Next, we turn to this third category of crimes. And they're of a different sort, and so there's a different penalty. In short, still, it's this. If you neglect life, the idea is, in that same measure, your life should be, you could say, neglected. Or the penalty should correspond to that. And again, the difference here is what follows in verses 28 through 36. These are not intentional, outright crimes, but it's just crimes by negligence. You should know better. And so if there's harm that's come from your negligence, you're responsible. It's a lack of oversight to protect others. And we can't go through all the details. Come ask me later at the visitor table or send me an email. But in verses 28 to 32, it deals with degrees of culpability when your ox has gored somebody. And in each case, the ox is to be put to death, stoned. And if the owner wasn't aware that his ox... But if you did know that you had a particularly naughty ox, you've tried to chain him up and you just got tired of doing it, and then he goes out and gores somebody, well, then not only are you out the ox, but you're out your life. Because you compromised and didn't value the life of your neighbor with what you did. Now, if it's only an animal that is injured and dies at your carelessness, the consequences are real, but they're not as deadly. Why? Because an animal's life doesn't equal a human's. Again, despite what evolutionists are telling us out there, you get this. Such that if you open a pit and forget to cover it up and somebody's ox or donkey falls in, you got to pay up. But you don't pay up with your life. You pay up with another ox or another donkey. 
similar things here. Again, it's about fairness. It's about justice. And we know this. Like, for example, if you're in a minor car crash that somehow was clearly not anyone's particular fault, however that happens, maybe a chain reaction of rear ends or something, but both insurance companies should cover it because neither of you were really at fault. They should split the tab. But if you run a red light, and, you, and even if it's not on purpose, well, I didn't mean to. I just was looking at my cell phone when I should have been looking at the light. Well, that's your fault. You're on the hook. And so it'd be fair for you to pay up. That's how this works. Ox for ox, scratch for scratch, car for car, fine for fine. The fine must fit the crime. The trouble is, when we take this good principle for justice in society, for a community, and we start to wield it personally in our personal lives, because then it becomes not caring about our neighbor and wanting good for them. It becomes far more about how do I get my stuff, how do I get my rights, or how do I just get my payback, my vengeance? You hit me, I'm going to hit you. You ding my car, I'm going to ding yours a little more. You give me the cold shoulder relationally, I'll never look your way again. That'll show them. And the Bible says, doesn't it, vengeance is mine? Yeah, for God. That's to quote God, not us. Justice is His. And that turns us to the other aspect of this. We may say we want justice, But that's not a winning proposition for us. We started this point kind of asking the question, you know, what's the just punishment for a wrong done? And we've been looking at like the law does here, like how that operates horizontally in our our lives and society. But there's a vertical dimension to this. What's the just consequence for wrong done against God? And we saw even in the law, that different kinds of living or life have different values. Namely, when you murder a person, even if he's a slave, he's a human, you should die for that. If an ox gets wrongly killed, you don't die for that. You have a different consequence, even if it might be hefty. Well, what if you injure the name and sin against the holy creator God? What's the right consequence then? You know, Paul tells us, of course, The wages of sin is death, and not just physical death. And even our very rebellious deeds driven by our selfish vendettas, these desires to get advantages over our neighbor at his expense, it just shows over and over that we are sinners, that we are guilty, we've broken his law, and justice should come upon us as a consequence. And this is where each one of us stands in this room this morning, of course, save what happens at the cross, right? This is the glory of the cross, where Christ hung as a guilty criminal. And he had our sins nailed at the top on the cross, the crimes over his head. He paid the debt. He fulfilled the justice in our place, such that Paul will tell the Colossians that our sins are now, all those crimes are just wiped away like they never happened. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, we hear this. God made us alive together with Christ. What did that look like? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did that happen? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. All of those death penalties are gone. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
And you know when Jesus was crucified, right? They put that title over the top of the cross, King of the Jews. That was to tell everybody that walked by. He is a rebel against the state of Rome, and so he's going to die as a rebel of the state of Rome. And Paul takes that picture and says, yeah, that whole list of your sins and death penalties, that's what's nailed to the top of that cross. So he takes all the justice that you might get all the grace. And is not this gift his grace, not getting what we deserve? Help us see like justice and the pursuit of what... And that's what happens as we look next, the other aspect of this, which is we are to extend mercy for others from ourselves. So look with me now to, over to Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to the New Testament. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Because as we turn to Matthew 5, we are going to be once again at Jesus' feet at the Sermon on the Mount and... He's going through and drawing out the true implications of the law. We've looked at this repeatedly. He highlights it with, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he revisits that theme again when he looks to verse 38, and he deals with the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Let's see what Jesus says here. Matthew 5, 38 through 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth, to even quote our text. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Whoa, that's quite a contrast. It doesn't seem to jive with what we had seen before. You know, honestly, it seems like he takes the whole idea, like those pages in your Old Testament, and he just went, ripped them and threw them out. Now, we know from earlier on in Matthew 5, that's not at all his intent. He's actually bringing the full intent of the law. So what's he doing here? He's correcting that prevalent misunderstanding that was going on in the first century, but honestly, it still takes place today, that the whole point of eye for eye, tooth for tooth was an excuse for you, for you to go get vengeance. Yes, eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, that is a great protection and fair ethic by which a whole country or society might try and operate. It's a great principle for the, like, the judges of Israel to think about how to make things fair between people in adjudicating cases, cases. But it was never intended as a principle for your personal relationships. Namely, to always be out looking for offenses, seeing how you might take advantage of someone else or how they took advantage of you. Because what is that? That's like you're trying to fulfill personal vendettas. If anything, what do we see in the law? It's about going and finding justice for your neighbor, making sure you own up, do all you can to make it right for him. But as it pertains to offenses done against us, here's what Jesus says, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Our concern isn't well, you just slapped me, so would you mind just coming a little closer so I make sure I can slap you? Radically, Jesus says, don't even retaliate. Furthermore, why don't you turn the other cheek to him? Because that's crazy sounding. 
Now, there's a lot of qualifications we can talk about here. Preach through Matthew 5. So you can go back to our archive and you look up that sermon and you can find some of those details, qualifications. We're just taking in the big picture. The big picture is you don't have to retaliate. You have a different standard. Because look, as he goes on, he starts giving other scenarios. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, it's not about fighting for your rights. It's not about your justice. Rather, we're willing servants going beyond the call of duty. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And it's a call to be generous, not preoccupied with what is ours. We looked at this even last week. But ready to dispense with what is ours for the good of other people. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a radical shift, but it's a shift from selfishness to generosity all the way around, isn't it? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth was not justifications for you to be selfish. It's about making sure your neighbor got what he should. Furthermore, what is it really about in our personal relationships that you extend mercy? We're not to be all preoccupied with our justice about ours and what's coming to us. Jesus points us a totally different way, and it's about a sacrifice for the good of others. Because notice, let's just keep reading and following our Lord as He teaches us about the law. Because as you keep reading in Matthew 5, He addresses the law's principle. This was in the law. Love your neighbor. And everybody says, yeah, that's great, but... He adds the common mentality tied to love your neighbor. Yeah, love your neighbor, but also hate your enemies. Well, Jesus corrects that misinterpretation too. And he says this, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Not just your neighbor. Love those who, and pray for those who want to persecute you. Notice why. So that you may be sons of the Father, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends out rain on the just and on the unjust. But did you hear that? I mean, this is wild. Why would you actually love your enemies and even pray for them? You want to do good to them. That is crazy. But what does he tell us right in the middle of there about why we should do that? It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does he mean by that? That's like the expressions we use all the time. That, the chi- that he's a chip off the old block. Or the apple doesn't, far, fall from, doesn't fall far from the tree. What's the point there? If you can love your enemies and pray for those who don't deserve it, you will be no more like God than in that moment who says rain on the good and the bad. Or Luke's gospel puts it together like this. This is Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good. And notice he ties all these things of justice together and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Why? Because what's the Most High like? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so you got to ask, has He not been merciful to you? Has He not been gracious in erasing all of your sins? Sins that you deserve to be punished for and He shows you grace for. I mean, what a gift we've seen in Christ in getting mercy. 
And so in view of that, Jesus is saying, you live a different life. You have a different standard you're walking by. Not different than the law, but it's the fulfillment and fullness of it. What kind of people, what kind of just people should we be? The kind of people that seek and pursue justice for others, fairness and equity and justice in our society, a society void of oppression and abuse, certainly. But when it comes to when we've been offended, misconstrued, misinterpreted, namely in our personal relationships, we're not to be about keeping a record of wrongs or a record even of services rendered, you know, holding that over people. We had them over three times, and they haven't even called us back. Not going to call them again. Now, get this. As Christians, wanton sinners running away from God, you've been freely, fully forgiven at the cross all by what He has done. That's all because of Christ. And then we're out trying to figure out what everybody owes us and how we can collect on them? Did we not get mercy from Christ and not justice? And so Christ calls the people of his kingdom to extend that kind of mercy to others. Because again, when you do, giving mercy to those who don't deserve it, you're being most like Christ then. So, what kind of person are you? Are you more about selfish justice, always pressing to get what you deserve? Or do people know mercy under your hand? Let me ask it this way. Which one of those points more to what your God is like? To bring this home, one pastor just made the revealing point. I want to share it with you. He said this. Strangely enough, you know, it's like, wouldn't you know, we do not usually quote the law eye for eye and tooth for tooth when we are in the wrong. We tend to quote it only when we think someone else needs to be punished for what they did to us. And Jesus was saying, we have it all backwards. When we are in the wrong, we need to make things right, and we ought to do everything justice requires. But when someone does us wrong, we do not have to insist on strict justice. Instead, what do you have, he says, an opportunity to show mercy. And I would add, to show the kind of mercy that you've received from your Father in heaven. May we be those kind of just and merciful people. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for our injustices. Forgive us for our lack of mercy. And we can say that because you invite us to acknowledge it and to see it. And to know that at your feet, we even get more mercy, so to speak. And this is a This just testifies to how good and kind you are. And so we give you glory, thanks to that. As recipients of mercy, may we go out good. May we go out loving our neighbor, wanting what's just for them, and most of all, that they might find just peace through the cross of Christ. May that be exampled in the way we live, this people you've bought by your blood. Let it be on our hearts and our mouth and our minds that others might see the greatness of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.